Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neurobiology podcast. Uh, it's January 26, 2017. Let me start over. Uh, how do I usually do this? I usually say the date, but what difference does it make? It doesn't matter. Okay, we're going to go plug ahead. <laughs> Our guest today uh, is Henry Yin. Hi, Henry. Hi. He is Associate Professor of Psychology and Neuroscience and of Neurobiology at Duke and at the Med School of Duke. His lab studies sensory motor control networks using an integrative approach that combines behavioral analysis with physiology and genetic tools, all kind of wrapped up in an engineering worldview, I think it's safe to say, kind of. A little bit. A little bit, okay. Um, around the room, we've got Carlos Palladini. Hello. We've got Fidel Santamaria. Hi. We've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. We've got Matt Higgs. Hi. Hi, Matt. And I'm your host, Selma Qureshi. Um... So you can correct me if I'm wrong, but fundamentally you study motor control, but you're you're doing it in kind of an interesting space between um, sort of the classical human models that were based on a lot of kinematic studies and and then this other literature of kind of event-based stuff in mice, right? Mm -hmm. uh, There's a big literature of that. Um, Can you say something about your ideas? Can you describe some of your ideas for us and our listeners um, about movement in the nervous system and how it reflects maybe a progression as well as a departure from traditional sort of ideas about motor control. Okay. Uh, that's or you can just talk about how we move. <laughs> that's it? Yeah. Easy. Okay, so I my training was actually in learning, so I think it's sort of by chance that I started studying movements. I think it's because... Um, so when I started my lab, I wasn't interested in movements at all. Uh, obviously, I was interested in the basal ganglia, but um, the, uh, my, my training was in operant conditioning and instrumental learning. So uh, initially, I was solely interested in reward-guided behavior, if you will. And as you know, there's a lot of literature on the role of dopamine uh, in reinforcement learning and the striatum on uh, other basal ganglia parts in uh, reward and decision making <clears throat> and functions like that. So, so when we started, I really wasn't planning to study movements, to be honest. Um, but we, um, I think I mentioned that reviewers comment. Basically, we we did some initial preliminary studies, and we found some relationship between dopamine uh, firing, the firing of dopamine neurons, and movement. So I think we, in the discussion of our manuscript, we just mentioned that this could reflect movement, which makes sense given what we know about Parkinson's disease. But, and I think one of the reviewers got mad and said. That was, there's no evidence whatsoever that the dopamine is involved in movement because it's not, you know, uh, it's been dissociated. And then I was stimulated by that, by that uh, comment because it, it wouldn't be very difficult for us uh, to measure both dopamine activity and some kind of kinematics. But... Um, um, of course, you know, it, there's a long tradition of uh, motor control studies where they measure kinematic variables. 
Um, I would say the difference is that um, they did not use freely moving animals. They are usually using uh, monkeys, restrained monkeys, where uh, uh, the degree of freedom of the movement is very limited intentionally, and that's their goal. Um, and so when we started, we were just using uh, pressure pads underneath the animal and then combined uh, video tracking. So we got good data. So that's how it started uh, initially. It was purely by chance. Uh, it wasn't part of the plan. So, so that's one difference between our approach and the traditional motor control approach. The other, I would say, is that simply that there is a strong bias in the motor control field. It's all uh, cortical-based. It's motor cortex, essentially. So M1 is supposed to be driving everything, especially voluntary movements. And um, so obviously we're, we're not studying M1, although we're starting to. Um, so that's another difference. And I think the most important difference is that uh, I think our data quality is much better. Uh, if you're looking at the relationship between your activity and kinematics, I think we definitely have the best data that I've seen. So, um, so tell us yeah. about your data. So also about what it means for data to be good yeah. in this situation. Yeah, so in, in the simplest case, um, you're looking at the correlation between a firing of neurons and uh, some movement variable that you can measure over time. So what they did typically is uh, they have a discrete movement like moving the arm and they can measure the velocity of the arm precisely, right? Uh, but, uh, but in their data, there's no clear relationship between the motor cortical activity and the arm movement. So what they did was, let's say, to average over hundreds of trials or have some peak measure, and then they can uh, correlate that with the neural activity, and then they get something like uh, maybe 0.3, you know, uh, correlation, R equals 0.3, uh, which R squared equals 0.3, which is better, but, you know, not, not that good, in my opinion. And uh, so if you look at a scatter plot with that kind of correlation, it's, it's, it's ugly, um, Statistically, it's fine, but um, so our data, we've had correlations, uh, if, if we analyze the data like that, it would be close to one or one, in, in other words, perfect. Um, so there's a big difference. Can I ask something about, you know, I've read a lot of those papers where people, that you're talking about, or people mm -hmm. are recording from monkeys yeah. while they're making movements, and one of the features of those papers that really jumps out at you is the monkey's doing a particular task, a very small proportion of what monkeys can do, just one thing. And as they're recording neurons, they say, we recorded 695 neurons of which 68 responded to the task. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's a bunch of different ways of interpreting that. And the way that they like to interpret it usually, I think those people in that field, is that well, it's just only a subset of neurons are really responding in this task, and the other neurons would respond in some other task. And so the, that selection is important for determining R squared and that kind of a thing. Yeah. So 
when you're doing this kind of thing, do you see that? You see vast numbers of neurons are not responding to the task at all, and then a relatively small number of neurons are responding strongly to that task? Or It depends it on the brain area, but in all the um, areas that we looked at, it's the majority, meaning over 50%, right? In dopamine cells, it's probably close to 100% in terms of uh, being correlated with movement. Um, you know, striatal neurons still, most of them. But, um, so is this partly because the, t- the movement the mu- that the yeah. mouse is making is a more is a more complete movement that isn't just flexion on a joint or something like yeah, that? Yeah, I think that's a key uh, difference in terms of how natural the movement is and whether the animal is free to move. Um, yeah, so that's definitely an important consideration. Um, and the other factor is, I think the head is extremely important for animals. So we are, we're focusing on the head, although we could measure other brain areas. So in natural movement, if you look at the natural movement of any animal, uh, the head and the torso is extremely important. So, um, it's possible that it, you know if in those studies if they actually measure head movement they find uh, better data that would they be definitely my guess. didn't want to measure head movement they definitely did not yeah, they definitely did not want to measure head movement but even in the eye movement studies for example those neurons I bet you money that they are related to head movement but the problem is that you know the, the animal can't move its head um, and, and we know this studies that show this, right? So I think that was just ignored. Um, the biggest lesson to me is that they are sort of ignoring, first of all, the natural behavior of the animals <clears throat> uh, out of convenience because it's easy to study the movement of a single joint, you know, like, let's say, the elbow. Uh, <clears throat> and, um, you know, also easier to measure, but the problem is... You know exactly. Are you what are you measuring, and uh, what kind of neurons you're, you're recording from? That's another question because if you, even if you find correlations, it doesn't mean that this neuron is actually doing anything. Uh, you know, I think the the quality of correlation is very important. People always say that you know correlation doesn't mean causation. Well, it kind of depends. There's you know, if you have uh, two continuous variables and they're always perfectly correlated, I think you should at least take a look, right? And, and nor is it clear in this case what causation means, right? So I think um, it, we definitely don't want to say that something is um, strongly correlated when it's 0.3. So how about the, uh, the direction of causation? Even if we assume two things are causally related, we could confuse cause and effect. So when we're looking at, say, at, um, at sensory neurons during movement, that we know are sensory neurons, like dorsal ganglion cells or something like that, then we can say, well, this activity is probably the result of the movement and not the cause of it. When we're looking at motor neurons, we could say the opposite. When we're looking in the striatum, what, sh- what should we say? Well, in terms of the distinction between sensory and motor? Yeah, between cause and effect of the movement. Right. I mean, I think it's, um, in the traditional sense, I think it's causing movement. But to me, that in itself doesn't mean anything. 
Because you're not explaining the mechanism. If you say, you know, cause is like the magic word. You say cause, and supposedly it's scientifically respectable. I don't think that's the case, because you still have to explain it, right? So, uh, in the sense that it's sort of preceding the movement initiation and being responsible for it, yes. I think, in that sense, it's causing the movement, uh, and there's evidence for that. Um, so, yeah, but in terms of the sensory motor distinction, which people also tend to argue about, um, but then I think if you actually understand the system, at least according to our model, which is a closed-loop control system, then that distinction is not as helpful because you obviously you need sensory pathways and you have you know descending motor outputs that go, that go to the muscles. But if you have a closed loop, then you have simultaneous interactions that you can't ignore that kind of you know, continuous process. Um, yeah. So could you say something about, about the loop? Like what is the control variable? What is the controller? What's the... Yeah, so... How's it running? Yeah, so in the closed loop, essentially you have a, some sensory input function and you have an output function, so that's just uh, very similar to the traditional view, which is very linear, uh, open-loop system. But then the difference is that first you have a comparison function that's comparing um, some internal reference signal. So in other words, what the desired state of uh, the input variable should be. And that signal is being compared to the ongoing sensory input and generating a, an error signal, so-called error signal, which is the discrepancy between the two. And that error signal is used, is used to drive the effectors, right? So in the simple system, the key is that you have a closed-loop condition because the, the output of the system is able to have some impact on the input of the system. So whenever that's the case, you have feedback. But more importantly, that feedback is going to be negative, not in the sense of, you know, it's bad or, or, or uh, aversive, but in the sense that it's negative because it reduces the error. So, it's, so in other words, the error is what, what's reducing the error in this kind of system, negative feedback system. So it's self-reducing and it's counterintuitive precisely because you have this closed-loop situation. Um, yeah, so in terms of the control variable, in engineered systems, the, the distinction is that if you have a thermostat, then uh, the user get, gets to access the system and you know, adjust the setting. But for humans or for animals, that kind of setting is uh, innate, if you will. It's uh, inside the organism. It can change, so it doesn't have to be constant, as in homeostasis, but it can be adjusted. In, in our model, it's adjusted by uh, descending signals, right? So by with this hierarchical arrangement, higher-level systems can adjust the lower-level systems by changing the reference setting. So... Um, by changing the reference setting, you're sending a request uh, in the system to reach a desired level of input. And because the feedback exists to allow you to do that, you know, as, as long as the control system works and there is a feedback function, you're able to achieve your desired results. And that's uh, the classic example of 
sort of go direct in this in this kind of negative feedback systems. So the, and the feedback will be uh, like the uh, uh, proprioceptive or some kind of sensory feedback, I imagine. Yeah, depending on what you're controlling. So if you're controlling posture, like you right now you're sitting, you're controlling posture, and you're awake. So you know there's position control. So your neck is actually you know not falling back. I'm just trying to imagine this in relationship with your R square uh, issue, right? So you're saying that you have an R square one because there's some kind of like almost perfect interaction between the feedback and the control and all that. Yes. Which is fine, but what if we just put lidocaine uh, around the neck of the uh, of the mouse? Would that uh, have you tried that and then see if that messes up with your correlation? I mean, some kind of messing up with the with the with mm -hmm. the feedback. Mm -hmm. I mean, just to test. Mm -hmm. the, well, but the hypothesis. Uh, yes, I think it's a great idea, um, and we we have tried something like that. We have tried dopamine antagonists. Uh, but that's messing with the with the plant, right? 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 If I remember my control um, class, controller. Yeah, the controller. The controller. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's worth doing. But I expect what what will happen is essentially, you know, imagine uh, Obama, Donald Trump is sending orders and nothing happens, right? So this is. The, the equivalent of what you're proposing because the effectors are not working, right? So I expect, uh, the, at least for a while, for these orders to continue as before. It's just that it's not, uh, depending on whether you're messing with the sensory feedback also, um, it's not going to, you know, for example, by uh, paralysis or if you restrain the... That would be too much, right? I mean, I'm just thinking something that yeah. would be like numbing. If you're measuring head movement, just mess with their inner ear a little bit. A little bit. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, I think make, that's a good experiment. Make one ear colder than the other. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's uh, yeah, a good that's, experiment. That's that's that'll cold water in one ear yeah. or something. Yeah. No, I, I think that, that probably should be attempted at some point. So that brings up the sort of issue of polysensory nature of the feedback, right? The controlled... Right. In this, in this case, the, contr the controlled thing is a super multi-dimensional thing because you might be using visual input to tell. I mean, I'm, th I'm not thinking about mouse moving his head so much. I think about my arm moving in space. So I'm, but it's almost the same problem. So that you have some visual information about where your body is, your proprioceptive information, you have vestibular information, all that stuff. That's why that brain has to do it is because it's the brain that's the only thing that's got all that mm -hmm. knowledge. And so that that points you up into the forebrain somewhere as the place where these kinds of things come together. So somewhere all that information is turning into a like a head position, a head velocity signal. Yes. And uh, so that's we, the assumption. So do we think that's happening in the cortex or are all this because the striatum is also a polysensory thing and could be combining all that information as well. So do, do we, can we tell anything about that from the data, about where these sensory information is turning into a position or a velocity uh, signal? Um, I don't know. Uh, I would imagine that the cortex has something to do with it, and probably the thalamus, but I don't really have any data to 
you know, support that. Um, but what you see in striatum, which it presumably is collecting a bunch of cortical information and then the neurons fire, mm-hmm. is that the neurons fire as if the input to them is collectively turns into a velocity signal. Yeah, I think if it's multisensory, my assumption would be that it requires the cortex to combine things. Um, but but then again, it's possible that you could do it at the level of the thalamus, thalamostriatal inputs. Certainly, there's some evidence that, you know, for example, vestibular inputs could reach the thalamus and then be sent to the um, striatum. So that's that's known. So I I think that's certainly possible. The question is, what what's the difference between let's say thalamic inputs versus uh, cortical inputs? That we don't know. So for me, I wouldn't. The way I was thinking about it is, if I could take an individual cortical, here's a stridal neuron that gets however many five thousand inputs from the cortex, mm-hmm. and now I looked at any one of those axons that was an input, would one of them look like a vestibular signal and one like a sensory signal, one like or a integrated, or would they all look like velocity? To me, <clears throat> of course, we don't know that, but I'm just sort of a thought. Well, I tend to think that it would be fairly simple. Um, by that point. So you wouldn't have so much diversity. You would have diversity in the cortical striatal inputs in terms of the the kind of signal, but not... not, um, So in in other words, I I don't think the cortex is just relaying information. I think the cortex is doing a lot of the processing and the results of the computation, if you will, uh, are sent to the basal ganglia to the striatum as relatively simple commands. So the basal That's ganglia right. is the is a real time operator. All motion planning, like in goal directed behavior, you're talking about certain many levels of time frame. All that stuff you imagine is cortically delimited, and the readout at the level of basal ganglia is instantaneous updating based on some wholesale signal. Is that sort of the or is there some processing? Some sort you studied synaptic in the striatum at one point. Mm-hmm. We're kind of wondering, I think some is kind of wondering whether the striatum actually learns to do what it's Well, but, doing. The, but that, that explains why the cortical striatal plasticity, in my view, that's probably the most important uh, type of plasticity in learning. Because what happens is you're basically you're using cortical representations that would correspond to what what we call like a purpose of some kind, right? Let's say to reach this cup, right? That's a simple purpose. And uh, you have to recruit the right action to do it, right? And how do you do it? Well, that's a learning process. So uh, let's say you can raise your hand. But uh, learning to raise your hand in order to indicate your disagreement with me, that's a new contingency, and that you can learn probably quickly, if you're smart. Um, but that's a learning process. So, the, so it specifies the content of learning, which is, you know, in learning theory, that's one of the major problems, is the content of learning. So people didn't know what exactly you learn, because you can't say that learning is some sort of uh, just a change in performance or a change in behavior. That's too vague, and, and it doesn't explain um, the difference between you know, fatigue or 
habituation or you know other types of learning, right? Um, so, so I think in this case, I would say that learning, this type of learning, would require a specific change in the system parameter. In this case, you know, you're establishing a new control, a hierarchical control level, right? You're allowing the higher level to recruit the to recruit the lower level. That's like a new new phone line, if you will, between the White House and some other branch of of the government. So you have to have that, and you have to change that all the time. You know, this is just like driving. You go to England, you have to change the because the contingency has changed. So. Um, Um, so we don't learn action to select actions in the striatum then? Do we learn to select actions? Yeah, we do, but there are only so many actions, right? But the purposes are more numerous, in my opinion, because it could be anything. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, it's not very clear to me. Like, like the example you give, like raising your hand. Are you saying that that, that raising your hand is, is a single, it has a single engram? Right, and the plasticity is from the cortex to uh, to uh, to basal ganglia to say, well, the decision has been made here at, at the cortex, but the movement is the same. But because the context is different, and if if there's going to be motor control, you will suspect that the motor control will have priors and posteriors, right? Like, what follows next? Mm -hmm. Right. One thing is to raise your hand for one purpose, mm -hmm. right? Which then is going to be scratch your head, and the other is going to punch somebody. Mm -hmm. It could be the exact same motion mm -hmm. until a bifurcation point. Yeah. And in preparation to perform that motor mm -hmm. task in real time, mm -hmm. there there should be that information there. So maybe maybe even if it is the same function, it doesn't have the same engram, right? And the plasticity could be there. In, in the, it could be a different circuit. It just looks the same uh, to us because we just say it's the same motion. But it doesn't have to be represented by the same neurons. Yeah, well, I think it's not the same exact same muscle output every time. Definitely not. That varies all the time because, you know, the, mu the muscle output does not determine behavior, right? Because you have the environmental influences. Um, now, we do have evidence that the striatal neurons don't represent just a generic uh, action, right? And you have these velocity components, so you actually have to use multiple modules just to get a normal action like this in a particular direction. Multiple modules have to be activated. They just cannot be antagonistic, in which case you're stuck. That's if you're activating left and right at the same time, you're stuck in the middle. Um, so, uh, so, but the up and left might be compatible. So the degree of activation of these two types of units would determine the, the trajectory of the action. So that's why I, I think you have to recruit the right combination of these uh, units in order to perform the action. Now, but that's a simple example. It gets more complicated if you're talking about a sequence, for example, serial water, which also requires the basal ganglia. Um, we had a paper on that a while ago. So the striatum is important for serial water, meaning 
know, A then B, or A, B, C, that's a simple order. And the, 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 you know, each letter is the same, but then you have to perform them in a particular order, and that's obviously very relevant for natural behavior. That's all, all natural behaviors or sequences. Um, how that works, I don't know. I just know that the striatum is important for it. Right, but I think you can view that as another type of transition. It's a higher water transition. It determines uh, nothing else except cereal water, right? And then that that signal will determine the you know the activation of each element in the sequence. Um, but I don't know how that works. So the fact that there's a velocity signal in so many different, or position signal that then gets transitioned to a velocity signal in so many different cell types happening simultaneously. Mm -hmm. is, is that, isn't that incredibly surprising? <laughs> I mean, where... Well, velocity to position integration. Um, so that's wait, surprising. Can you explain, can, can you just kind of take us through the levels of, in the basal ganglia? Because most of what we've discussed about basal ganglia has always sort of been about action initiation and um, Parkinson's and, you know, just sort of, we, we, we haven't heard your full story, and I want to flesh that out a little bit okay. more. Okay. From um, the top. Th that'll take a while. I so I think the, the, the key point is um, below the basal ganglia, we think that there are position controllers. And position, position controllers, you can think of them as roughly posture control systems. And so if you push, there's resistance. But they, um, um, given a constant reference signal, let's say it's not changing, then you just, you're, you're stuck in that position, right? In order to uh, move uh, these systems, you have to change the setting. So like, so you go from position one to position two. And when, once you change that setting, it's like the thermostat, the system moves there's like a step, basically. Like here, position one, position two. So that's how you get a position controller to move. So the question is, of course, you can change that uh, reference setting, but um, how to control how quickly you go from position one to position two, right? So the speed, the rate of change in position is key. So to do motion control, what happens is you actually need, uh, you can imagine you have three positions, so you go. You can go from one to, you know, you can have a sequence like one, two, three, right? But then the speed is fixed, so if you want to vary that speed, how quickly it changes, you want that sequence to change at a particular rate, and how do you do that? And so that's where the basal ganglia come in, because according to our model, that's essentially the function of the basal ganglia, at least the motor control part. It's to generate as a sequence of position uh, reference signals, um, and the rate of that is variable depending on the, uh, you know, uh, the requirements of the task, right? So, for example, if you're follow if you're chasing someone, that's Governed by the distance between you and the and the target, whoever you're you're uh, chasing. So you use that information to guide your speed, and that 
and the speed velocity, you know, which is sensed as velocity, will generate a discrepancy. So it's like when you're driving, in the, how fast you want to be and uh, how fast you are currently, and that will allow you, you know, that difference is going to uh, generate this discrepancy, error signal. That's you know, then you apply the the uh, gas pedal. And that will translate, because of the integrator, the magnitude of that signal is going to be proportional to the rate of change in the basic angular output. And that will be the position reference. So that sounds really kind of expensive for something like a habit or stereotype behavior. What, what happens in, in that instance? Can you imagine it sort of... Right. But so, so it is possible that you can have a simplified way of doing this where you just use a default setting like just one you don't you don't necessarily have to use this kind of system so for example if you have you know position controllers acting without any velocity or motion control uh, they can certainly move right if you push it it'll, it'll uh, have this so-called reflexive movement um, yeah so I, I don't think you need you need it for movement per se but you need it for I, th I would think that for voluntary movements, that's one of the most important characteristics that you can vary the speed according to your needs. So how can you tell if the behavior is very voluntary? Well, um, I think that's one of the characteristics. Mm -hmm. And um, in the case of extremely habitual or stereotype movements, maybe you have a relatively fixed uh, speed, it's possible that you can have and you know, highly trained movements have a stereotyped uh, velocity profile. Um, I think there's probably some evidence for that, but um, yeah, we don't know. We haven't uh, reached that point yet. Yeah, we haven't even gotten to Parkinson's disease. <laughs> Unfortunately, Mr. Rabbit, we'll have to have you over again. Okay. Um, <laughs> thank you, uh, Henry. This has mm -hmm. been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. <laughs>